All right. Welcome to another episode of Stock Talking. It's been a couple months uh, since we had him on, but friend of the podcast, uh, always a good interview, the impervious. Um, yeah, as I uh, as I look at some charts, uh, you know, specifically on SPY, you, it seems like the market, if, from a layman's perspective, if you just look at the indexes, it's kind of just been like flat-ish the last couple of months, but there's been a whole lot going on behind the scenes. Some might call the sector rotation. So yeah, let, let's kick it off by saying, what's, what's been going on recently? What are you seeing in the markets? Oh, yes, Ben. It has been a while. It feels like an eternity in market years here uh, since we got to chop it up. Uh, make some calls and remember the good ones, forget the bad ones. Um, but here we are in a fresh year, 2022. So kind of amazing to think that, uh, you know, we first started talking well over a year and a half ago. Um, but since then, what has the market done, but just absolutely rip the J Powell printer has definitely been a friend of the podcast and friend of any uh, equity investor in general. But here we are sort of potentially at a conclusion of, of that sort of regime. So um, here we are not too far off of all-time highs in the S&P 500 and NASDAQ. However, you know, recent tape has been showing a lot of weakness, uh, definitely suggesting there's a potential correction. And so I think the dominant uh, feature in the market these days, as I'm sure everyone is aware, uh, is Fed policy and the potential for some rate hikes. Obviously, we've got some asset purchase tapering coming up, uh, and this will have you know, a, a very negative effect uh, on, on equities. But with a lot of uh, inflation numbers, especially the headline inflation, CPI, PPI, uh, dropping some, some pretty big prints, uh, not exactly beating expectations, but uh, definitely showing that we are in uh, a, a pretty strong inflationary regime. All of the Fed's targets have been met more or less to uh, begin some tightening. So, you know, does this mean it's time to get bearish? Does this mean that, you know, we have an actual correction instead of yet another dip to buy? Or is this just creating a potential buying opportunity to set up into the first quarter? So for now, I think uh, what you really need to be watching is the 10-year yield. Um, so TNX, and that made a new 52-week high in the last week after you know, one of the biggest moves in, in over a year uh, to head to, um, you know, towards a 2% number, which I think could represent a significant pivot or top. But uh, I think that will definitely be enough to put fear into the heart of tech investors, uh, which, you know, the FANG stocks have been a, a hedge fund hotel over the last however many months with, you know, a lot of the breadth numbers continuing to drop more and more stocks are, you know, below their, their moving averages, uh, 15, 200 day and an increasing number of NASDAQ stocks putting in 52 week lows. So unless those same couple of stocks keep on moving up, then there's, there's a lot of weakness here. But that said, I don't think the market is done with the uh, old tricks still working. And I don't think that anyone should be falling asleep at the wheel here expecting, you know, vastly different change in the very near term. So, you know, I think the outlook is there's a definitely a buying opportunity sometime here in, you know, early first quarter, uh, looking into March when any type of uh, potential rate hike would come, and that's assuming a worst case scenario here. So I do think we still have a window to keep making the same trades that have been working. And you know, of late, some of the the, the names I've been watching. I mean, the, the inflation trades in, in a lot of the the miners, uh, particularly of commodities like iron, uh, copper. So that'd be like Freeport, McMarin, which looks like uh, Vale's been turning up great dividend stock there, uh, as well as Tech Resources and uh, a good friend of of 
uh, and near and dear to my heart, Lithium of America's Corp, just a couple ones that I've been watching lately. So I don't expect that trade to necessarily trade change anytime soon. But um, if it does look like those yields are about to reverse and start heading down, then I think we have an excellent opportunity to buy some of our favorite names that we've talked about plenty before and which have absolutely been crushed in uh, the intervening months since we talked last, just to throw out a few names, CrowdStrike and Cloudflare. Um, just eviscerated, you know, close to, if not below 50% of their, their all-time highs. So, you know, I think we definitely have a chance to, to watch those, those old dogs just come back in and make some insane moves again, but timing it is definitely the question here. So uh, interested in some of your near-term thoughts here, Ben. Oh yeah, I have, I have a few and, and we'll get into a bunch of the names you mentioned and some of the other things. I mean, to, to I guess, uh, set the stage here. I mean, it's January 16th, 2022. Um, you know, SPY and most of the indexes, including, you know, QQQ and the, the NAS, some of the other ones you might use for NASDAQ or cloud stocks are historically close to all time highs. I mean, I think the equities market, if you zoom out on a, a one or two year time horizon are doing quite well. Um, you talk about the 10 year bonds. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is at a, a 52 week low, I guess, if you look at price and high, if you look at yield. Um, but, you know, I think what always gets me on that argument is. The 10-year relative to where it was in like 2018 when people were worried about the taper tantrum um, is still well below on a yield basis where it was then, right? Like we were talking about 3% in you know, mid-2018, and now we're at 2%. Um, you know, it, people forget, I think, in like the mid-2000s, it wasn't uncommon for the 10-year to trade around 5 or 6%. And of course, if you want to go back to the 70s or 80s, right, you could pick up the 10-year bond on, on a double-digit basis. So I bring this up to say like, I'm not convinced the bond market is pricing in any type of inflation, uh, short term or long term. Um, one like data point that sticks out to me, I wrote a blog post on this recently. Uh, for those who want to like get back into the blog, um, I'm on a Substack now where all the cool kids are. So stocktalking.substack.com. Um, but my most recent post was on, happen? yes, thank you. <laughs> um, Trident Container, which I've written about plenty of times, but you know, this is a a container lessor, so it leases assets, and you know inflation definitely figures in a lot in terms of the the outlook for these companies because their cost of debt largely um, is determined by inflation as well as what they can lease the assets at. So Trident uh, basically just started issuing a bunch of senior unsecured debt. It's it's done a lot to improve its credit profile, but like know that this company um, has has traditionally not issued uh, debt at the corporate level, but they're doing it now at three and a quarter percent, which you know, it's right now it's about, or at the time it was about 153 bips above the 10 year treasury. Um, but I point that out to say like three and a quarter relative to where the 10 year has been is like extremely low and extremely tight uh, for a company that like couldn't even issue corporate grade debt a couple of years ago. And they locked it in for 10 years, right? So if rates go to, to 17%, um, this is going to look pretty brilliant. But I, I just don't think investors are buying that, right? It's like, I think by all accounts, this was a pretty well subscribed offering. We've seen a lot of market. It would be a lot of activity in the bond market. Um, you know, it's, it's not. It's somewhat apples to oranges, but like I don't think any issuers are afraid of, of coming to market now. I think in 2022 we should see a lot of SaaS and other IPOs. Uh, we should see a lot of SPACs, although not as many SPACs as we saw in the last two years. Um, but I'm just like I'm just kind of short that the market is worried about inflation. You, you tell me why I'm wrong, but like I, I basically based this on the 10 year and the 30 year and the bond market in general. Um, there really were inflation concerns. I would think we'd be seeing it in you know, rates going to 5 10 15%, everybody taking out a mortgage as fast as they possibly could. Um, but I don't really see that type of kind of crazy activity. I more just see equities going down and people saying, oh, people are worried about the Fed raising rates 25 bips three times. 
But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll pause there because I know that's kind of a controversial opinion, but tell me why I'm wrong. Oh, I absolutely agree in the sense that I think that fading the inflation uh, trade or hysteria is probably going to be, you know, one of the better trades in the first half of, of 2022 here. And, you know, what I don't think you can discount is definitely the reaction to FOMC in a lot of um, the, 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 you know, policy decisions coming out of the Fed. So in the near term, I think that there is definitely an underpricing, at least in the near term of the downside volatility, which to me means that if we're looking at the, the trend so far, limited sample size, but so far of 2022, you know, there is a, a bit of a, a distributive look, a bit of a downtrend here. And, you know, with this type of sustained weakness, because this goes back into November and that uh, Red Friday following Thanksgiving, where, you know, we saw a bit of a rug pull, you know, there hasn't been much of a sustained constructive move in, you know, any sector other than maybe energy and a few other spot places. So I think this type of, of weakness, yes, well, you know, it definitely looks rather pedestrian compared to, you know, the taper tantrum 2013 or, you know, other times that we've seen volatility as a result of, you know, Fed policy changes. I think that there is definitely a, a, near-term downside risk and something that should be taken into account as sort of there is a reaction and with a strong trend in sort of uh, the 10-year yield, which is probably the best barometer for, you know, at least trading against in, in the near term. You know, I don't think you can fade just the, the move, at least on Friday, you know, uh, close to a, a almost a 4% move um, in, in yields there. So uh, it doesn't look like a one-time pop and retreat. And I think that needs to be something that you pay close attention to. Now, that having been said, uh, inflation, we probably, you know, very well may have reached peak inflation here in terms of at least headline numbers. You know, there's a lot of things to look at, particularly with Omicron potentially ending the pandemic, hopefully easing a lot of the supply side constraints with a lot of the price pressure coming from uh, the supply side as opposed to demand. A lot of metrics like consumer spending indicating that, you know, demand has potentially fallen off or there is not as much pent up demand as one would have think or is, you know, haven't heard it as much, but definitely a year ago, you know, something that is waiting on the other side of the pandemic. So if, if we have easing of the supply side, you know, that will hopefully, you know, provide less pressure on prices, but there's also still wage pressure. But either way, I think we're staring down ultimately a, a deflationary impulse as, you know, the economy is not growing or not, you know, producing as much as one would think based on all of the fiscal and monetary stimulus. So in that case, I do think a lot of it is overblown. And, you know, we may even just see a, a sort of intermediate top here at 2% for 10 years or on the 10 year, and then just return back to sort of the same deflationary regime where the growth trade and the tech trade, you know, continues to be you know, the, the best source of, of returns in the near term. So I don't think you really need to change the thesis, but, you know, I, I think that the, the same sort of frothiness and hysteria with all the retail participation, which hasn't gone away, and this is still very, very much an options driven market. And I shouldn't, you shouldn't expect that to change. Um, will will definitely still be in play for the first half and the likelihood of a Fed pivot, you know, with the Fed put being somewhere you know, maybe lower than one would think, but still out there, you know, it definitely indicates that we're looking for a buying opportunity instead of uh, an all out market crash. But with with downside volatility being underpriced right now, I don't think it, it hurts to be positioned for an event like that, because I think what we've seen is that a lot of the moves to the downside or large downside volatility come when there isn't a significant amount of hedging or high VIX. So with with VIX being sort of 
at least to my eyes, relatively low based to based on the, the volatility here. I do think there's a near term potential for, you know, a spike lower before, you know, a glorious blow off top melt up that will sort of be the the swan song of of this this bull rally. But I definitely think there is still more upside to come. But, you know, positioning at the right time for it will be key. Yeah, the, the downside recently has felt uh, quite swift. And you mentioned earlier the retail participation um, potentially coming back. I mean, I suppose in the near term, a lot of people would point to the poster childs of 2020 and 2021 being examples of retail not participating anymore. I mean, I think uh, our, what's happened with ARC has been insane to me uh, for everything from like what's happened to the underlying companies to Kathy Wood's reaction to it. Um, and of course, like, you know, whether you look at Peloton or Zoom or, or some of the favorites of kind of what I'll call the COVID era, which hopefully is is behind us, um, you know, not sure what to make of these massive like 40% drawdowns. And I think I agree with you in the near term, like I could certainly see it drawing down um, 30 or 40% more. And, you know, I think you have good technical reasons for that. On my end, you know, as a, a value investor, I, I had a blog post today trying to talk about kind of some of the fundamental reasons for that. I think people forget, uh, you know, from a historical perspective, like SaaS didn't used to trade at 20 or 30 times sales. Um, and if you do the math in terms of like, I'm going to own this company long term, I'm just going to look at the cash flows. Um, I'm not just going to try to sell it to the next highest bidder or assume a strategic will come in. Um, you know, I, I think you kind of get to a reasonable sales multiple being like 10 or below. Maybe people think I'm cheap or crazy. I am cheap. Like I'm, I'm a cheap guy and I like to buy my stocks cheap. Um, but I, again, like, I kind of wonder what's the bottom here, um, for some of these tech stocks, you know, they're, they're obviously all great businesses. Um, but you know, I think we both agree that the inflation concerns are overblown. So maybe the macro environment uh, could be a catalyst for things getting better if it turns out rates aren't going up. Um, uh, but I'm kind of wondering like, when did, when does the marginal buyer step in and, and buy tech right here? Well, I think we definitely look at different time horizons, but uh, at least for for me in considering, you know, what what that signal would be again back to the ten year. If we do see that uh, peak and start, you know, then then you know, getting a bid in in uh, the bond space, then that definitely spells uh, a positive at least near term outlook. But I think what it comes down to is, you know, when looking at sort of the arc model and you know nothing but a, a stream of bad news for Kathy Wood with. Arc being you know 50% below all time highs, seeing a you know 52 week high outflow in just the last week, and uh, a few kind of uh, very uh, ugly uh, releases, whether that's you know PR or just appearances. Um, I think the the Q score of, of Kathy Wood has definitely come down a few points in in the last year or since the last time we talked. But um, what I don't think will change is that. You know, there will be a premium paid for growth for companies that do have earnings. So, you know, the P.E. ratio is kind of irrelevant when there is no E uh, as part of that equation, which is part of the issue, I think, with the investing philosophy in this concept of innovation. And I do think that even though, you know, the retail investor hasn't gone away, they've probably gotten more sophisticated in the last year or two and can appreciate, you know, when there is a good growth opportunity versus garbage and hype. Uh, and so there, there is a more discerning street, but I do think that, you know, the names that we talked about, particularly like Cloudflare and CrowdStrike, which you know, have shown consistent growth, consistently profitable, you know, delivering earnings on, on uh, each share. So there's, there's definitely a, an opportunity with 
as long as yields are low, credit is cheap and you can grow for, you know, a, a relatively low price compared to, you know, what it would be in a higher rate environment, then, you know, as long as you are a company that is providing earnings, then I think there will continue to be a premium, you know, spent on that unless we do see significant rate hikes. So, you know, if some of the, the uh, forecast, I think Jamie Demon last week uh, was was predicting up to six in in 2022, which you know, who knows what he knows? Probably nothing. Um, but I think that that's a worst case scenario as opposed to a likely outcome. And so I'm fading that. I do think that you know, with in the face of weakness, we'll see the same type of uh, monetary and fiscal support that you know we think is over and that nozzle is being turned off so there's certainly going to be a great buying opportunity in those specific names but no i'm not interested in any of the sort of innovation or narrative type stocks at this point um but we can get into you know some other different names a little bit later but yeah i'm definitely looking at arc at least as potentially a short squeeze opportunity it does seem like that's gotten particularly crowded uh, as a short since uh, big short Michael Burry announced that being, you know, one of his largest short positions uh, in the near term. So that's that's a face ripping uh, rally that I think uh, anyone who is getting too bearish on, you know, those stories should consider. But long term, I don't know that that's an investable uh, opportunity, but I think there is a, a, a phenomenal trade looking, you know, at the one year anniversary of the GameStop and AMC moves for for something similar, yeah. potentially in a different place. But let me ask you like a weird market mechanics question that I've been wondering. So I've seen a lot of this Fintwit stuff of it about like, oh, the ARC short interest is ticking up. You know, like ARC is now setting itself up for a short squeeze. It's kind of strange to me because ARC is an ETF, right? And ultimately, like it has to buy and sell shares to match what it's invested in. Like, I think we've all heard this stuff where it's like, oh, if Tesla goes way up, like ARC has to buy, um, has to, I think it might actually be decrease its position to keep its like 10% cap. But it, Kathy was essentially trying to maintain a portfolio to reflect what the underlying companies are doing. Um, and like that can get strange if you have companies that are very illiquid and they do own some small caps. Um, but basically, like the fact that it's an ETF makes it weird to me that people would say it's setting up for a short squeeze. Don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it's like, okay, let's say it did get squeezed and the thing rips like 30%. My understanding of that is the, the fund would have to go out and buy shares in all the underlying companies to make sure the assets match uh, what they actually own. Yeah, and I think much is, too much has been made about short, squeeze, short squeezes in the last year, you know, considering those insane moves in GameStop and AMC, and that term has been brought to sort of the, the attention of, you know, the, the general investing public. And it is a dynamic, I think, that exists in anything. I mean, the nature of a short, at least naked short, you sell first and then eventually have to buy back to cover the trade. Uh, if there is any short interest, that is an implied buyer at some point in the future. So any, you know, tradable uh, asset or security, you know, has a potential to short squeeze if there is the opportunity to, to short first. So whether it's an ETF, uh, or not, I mean, you could even consider the move in the dollar this year to be a potential short squeeze. Uh, you know, there's, it's pretty complicated in terms of how that's measured, but, you know, with record hedge fund short positions going into, you know, late 2021 or excuse me, 2020, um, it almost seemed like a natural outcome that there would be this, this type of move. So if, you know, the dollar is something that could even, and I'm sure this happens plenty in the FX market 
markets um, can experience the the dynamics of a short squeeze and certainly uh, an ETF like the ARK fund can. And so whether, you know, that this could be driven by short squeezes on the, the different holdings or just the ETF itself, um, it's just the dynamic that exists. Now, some of those big eye-popping multi, uh, multiple short squeeze or moves in a single day type short squeezes depend on having a low amount of float. So, you know, fewer shares uh, available to transact. And so that causes an illiquid environment and short covering uh, drives up the price very quickly once, you know, it's, it's driven up. But in a lot of these cases, those moves are primarily driven by options and a gamma squeeze, something we talked about uh, a year ago. So those two things combined really create those crazy moves. But when there is any amount of short interest, again, that that is implied that they will have to buy at some point to cover that short position. So gotcha, um, yeah. There, it wouldn't take much other than just, you know, uh, a short move above a certain number of stops to see just a, a brief uh, amount of volume coming in. But, you know, as we have seen with GameStop and AMC after a certain point in any of those dynamics, you know, when there is a high amount of short interest and a move against that, some short covering, they just come right back in at a certain point and it's a, a slow bleed off. You know, the VIX chart looks eerily similar to basically half of, you know, the meme and uh, different you know, narrative growth stocks. So that's, that's a good way to interpret it. None of the pops are really going to be sustained, but that, that is the nature of how it would look. But um, yeah, that's, that's something where once it, it gets too popular, you see too much on FinTwit, you know, talking trash about ARC or any other position, uh, the contrarian is trying to consider, you know, how to find uh, the opposite trade, which is probably being underpriced and underappreciated. Yep. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. I guess you can short anything, which has shares you can borrow. And what uh, ARK itself has to include in the ETF is kind of an after effect, kind of like with index inclusion. People are like, oh, more people are trying to own the index. And that's why you see Apple skyrocketing because Apple is most of the index. Putting on my Galaxy brain hat, just thinking of that now, I kind of think a nice trade would be like, look at some illiquid small caps that ARK owns or owns the majority of. And if it's setting it up for a short squeeze, like ARK is going to have to buy more of those shares. Um, so hypothetically, like if you're trying to buy an illiquid asset, it might cost you a, a pretty penny. So maybe just try to buy the, the super small names that ARC already owns. Uh, but that's my, that's my two cents on uh, a risky but interesting trade you could possibly put on. Yeah, and I think that there's uh, an opportunity, and it, it doesn't even need to be in some of the particularly illiquid names. I mean, names like DocuSign, which you know, is absolutely clobbered uh, after you know, not too uh, terrible earnings uh, back in December, um, sitting you know, 100 points below what it was basically you know, going to earnings just you know some of the larger holdings there i think do definitely represent an opportunity i think the term is you know it's like a beach ball being held underwater uh and so you know when something is that hated and is not making you know consistently large downside moves you got to be worried about you know the the, the move in the opposite direction because the same thing i think could be said for you know chinese stocks and china stocks which we look back a year ago those were also sort of the heroes of the market but um, certainly with the Evergrande collapse and a lot of um, you know, conservative measures taken by you know, Chinese um, financial um, uh, institutions there, I think that there's been potentially too much uh, bearishness. The only risk here, and we've talked about China stocks plenty before, you know, the questionable accounting, potential fraud, um, they do present a, a unique opportunity nowhere else on the market to actually go to zero, uh, which is something that needs to be considered with you know, some of the largest uh, traded names like Baba just being VIEs or not, you know, actually equity in the stock itself. 
um, a holding in a shell company. So they present a tremendous amount of unique risk there. Uh, but also, you know, considering how beaten down they are, I think there is potentially a number of, you know, short squeeze opportunities, a la the original uh, Bill Huang um, short squeeze and then ultimate, you know, bubble pop a year ago. So that's yet another trade that worked before and may very well work again, considering how beaten down those names are. But, you know, those are, are getting pretty crowded in, in terms of how those trades have been playing out. So at some point there is a, a violent uh, mean reverting move uh, to look out for. Yep. Yeah, this actually might be a good chance to segue into uh, some ideas you sent right before we recorded this pod. So the China one is interesting. And, and I think you bring up some a good point where yeah, there are fundamental concerns here and legal concerns with uh, the VIE structure. I think there's some, been some good FinTwit threads and articles on it. Um, but again, it's like, what, what are your shareholder rights here? And I think with Baba, it, it's been interesting to see all the follow-on trades where people look at Charlie Munger and see he doubled his position um, and then kind of fly into the stock going, oh, if you know the bra- half of the brains of uh, you know, Berkshire and Omaha are doing it, like it might as well do it. I will point out, I've never heard Buffett comment on, uh, on Baba. I don't think he owns any. So uh, my personal hero has stayed away from this trade, but, but all that said, like, you know, I, I buy that China could squeeze, um, but I, I don't necessarily buy that any of these issues that people have brought up are going to be resolved anytime soon. Um, you know, what has happened in China as it pertains to financials and uh, shareholder rights and any of the other things you want to take off that are things we take for granted in the United States, but are actually huge issues in stock markets and other countries. Uh, none of those appear to be resolved uh, or will be resolved anytime soon. And then similarly, like you brought up SPACs too, you know, you said a large percentage of SPACs are trading below NAV. Um, to, to me, I would actually say the reason is, uh, you know, they do have cash from the SPAC deals on their balance sheet, but like, I think people are so concerned they're going to keep burning that cash. Um, as another point, you know, I've, I've kind of been keeping an eye on this myself and I've seen a couple SPAC deals where, uh, the deal goes up for vote, it gets approved by shareholders, and then the, the stock immediately tanks, um, basically, because people are saying the managers who were behind this deal bought a company at absurd prices. Um, and we actually think the deal was dilutive and not accretive. So, I mean, SPACs, there's been no resolution in some of the issues around incentives, around deals that are getting improved, around like shareholder sophistication. I still think there's an SEC uh, hammer waiting to fall or whatever the phrase is. But foot waiting to drop, I don't know what my idioms are today, but uh, there are going to be issues with SPACs. We haven't heard the last on the regulatory front, but I guess like if you're just thinking of a trade versus long term, it seems like maybe you're bullish on China and SPACs this year. Um, But I guess I would ask you, like, what do you think the long term outcomes are for both of these things? Uh, Probably not good, but at the same time, that does not, you know, prevent one from looking at a, a trade in the near term. And I will admit, you know, I'm probably uh, trading outside of my lane with SPACs, but there there does seem to be a strong arbitrage uh, opportunity, um, you know, looking at some of these warrants, which are, you know, trading significantly below uh, issuance. So I'm sure there's a, a smarter, more knowledgeable person in SPACs than I who can definitely find a trade there just because of how unloved they are. But for them to be frothy and presenting the same type of uh, at least interest to the retail market, that they did last summer in 2020, you know, that's doubtful it comes back. But what I do want to point out about China stocks is that um, there is at least in a, a larger scale or more macro sense, um, 
you know, been a few signals that at least emerging markets look like a buy. I mean, primarily the dollar looks to be potentially uh, turning around on the weekly chart. Uh, and this has traditionally been a sign to buy emerging markets. So that's one place I'd be looking, especially if the dollar, the DXY uh, starts to, you know, head back down as many expected it to with, you know, that move up in the dollar being sort of the contrarian trade of the the year, I would think. Um, but moving in the op opposite direction with a, a dollar that's losing value, you definitely want to be in emerging markets. So at least in a larger sense, I do think that presents a, a good opportunity. But at least in the options front, you know, one strange thing I noticed Friday, uh, uh, about 15 million in premium for pin duo duo uh, PDD uh, in the in the money, which, you know, stands out in terms of just the notional value there. But um, considering that there has been at least a few days of positive uh, movement in a lot of the, the big China uh, e-tail names, um, definitely something to keep an eye on with, you know, many of them having, you know, chopped off a large percentage of, of their value. So I think that there's an opportunity in the short term, if only because of, you know, the short squeeze potential, this being sort of the time of the year for a short squeeze and a potential brief near-term regime change with uh, emerging markets seeing inflows and the dollar turning around. So there's enough of a thesis there that it's on my watch list, but do I want to be, you know, allocating a significant amount uh, to some of these individual names? Not necessarily, but I do think that being maybe a, a little more overweight on, on emerging markets uh, is definitely something to consider in terms of a portfolio allocation. Uh, decision. Yeah, I think uh, one thing I'd pull, I'd throw out as maybe a safe way to play it. I own a very small amount, but I've heard it pitched a lot among kind of circles I follow on the internet. Um, SoftBank owns a large portion of Alibaba in, uh, I think, both the Vision 1 and Vision 2 funds. Obviously, it's sold off a ton uh, because there are many frothy names in both the Vision funds. Um, but if you own SoftBank, remember, you also own a portion of a you know kind of standard banking business. They also own some very liquid businesses, like they own a large portion of NVIDIA. Um, or actually, I might be, uh, whatever the company is that NVIDIA, or ARM, excuse me, um, but that acquisition looks looks like it's not going to go through. But again, you are getting like a, a valuable semi-play. Um, so there are liquid assets in the SoftBank portfolio, trades below what it marks as book, whether you want to say that book is uh, you know, significantly overvalued relative to where they have it from an accounting perspective, that's up to you. Um, but I think like Alibaba, you know, a lot of uh, negativity has been priced in, of course, like, you know, on the variable interest structure and as well as uh, like some of the accounting shenanigans, you have no idea what you're kind of getting. Uh, but like the, the price is telling you that uh, a lot of that has been priced in for better or for worse. So I, I, I think like I wouldn't personally own Alibaba, but for the bulls out there, I, I think they're starting to get to the point where, you know, the stock has no expectations going forward. Uh, people are kind of starting to write this asset down to zero. So We'll see what happens. I do love the idea of some some contrarian lotto uh, plays here. Just the the degenerate gambler inside me is 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 getting all fired up about you know the the potential for just some contrarian trades. Yeah, it excites me too. I just don't like the idea of being like you could get an unwelcome surprise any day on Chinese government headline news. Uh, so that to me, like I much would prefer owning some like bad energy names where sentiment is, is poor, but at least, you know, that like the rules are quote fair, which uh, that will be my way to segue to talking about some of our kind of more cyclical energy plays, which I know is a big idea for you, uh, in 2022. So I'll, I'll, I'll cede the floor to you, but this is interesting as I know energy is an, an interesting sector you've been looking at. Yeah. In, uh, 
if you've been watching sort of the commodity space, there there's definitely been some strong moves in crude uh, and also more recently nat gas it being winter time. And I think the, the dominant trend is that ESG and a move to renewables uh, has driven a lack of investment production in oil. And that has driven up the price of spot oil, uh, while not necessarily being as much of a, a tailwind as one would think for the producers. But either way, I think we are definitely in a pretty bullish regime for for crude and energy. Uh, however, I do think there is a potential that you know oil has topped a bit. I don't know that there is significant demand. I don't see more travel coming back, especially not corporate travel uh, and driving that you know cruise ships are not operating, especially with Omicron. So once sort of that couple week period where 50% of the workforce is calling in sick, uh, works its way through through demand, I think we'll probably see a significant number uh, or, or a build of crude uh, in the near term as, as a result of some of that. But energy will continue to sort of be one of the better trades to look at in, in yes, a cyclical sense. And so I'm not necessarily looking at crude. I in honestly, again, out of my lane there, but there is a space that I think presents a, a fantastic uh, opportunity in the near term, and that is yellow gold uranium. Uh, I don't think we've uh, chatted about this one before, but uh, there was recent news where the EU uh, announced that they plan to classify um, nuclear power and natural gas as green investments, basically uh, making them uh, chill and A-OK kosher with the ESG crowd. Uh, and this definitely to much consternation from uh, a lot of the, the opponents calling it unsafe. But point being, they really have a lack of sources for energy with most of their natural gas coming from Russia. So there is no alternative uh, considering the, the massive amounts of inflation that they're seeing in Europe. And, you know, as bad as some prices have gotten here domestically in the U.S., certainly things are worse in other parts of, of Europe. So there is a strong driver in need to find an alternative source with renewables being several years away from providing the amount of energy or at least the energy usage and footprint of, of most individuals being such that you know they can live within the confines of that. So a stopgap is definitely presented by nuclear, you know, much beaten down, much blind, but there are a couple interesting dynamics going on in that space that present a, a very interesting investment opportunity. Uh, one of which being the introduction of the Sprott physical uranium trust. So Sprott has a few uh, other physical trusts like silver. That name came up a lot in the silver squeeze about a year ago uh, and some other commodities, but they introduced the physical uranium trust to uh, buy and you know give exposure to physical uranium um, spot. So this has actually created um, a, dyna a dynamic where they are cornering the market here in, in physical uranium. So even if price were to come up you know, 50% from current levels, that still wouldn't justify uh, enough investment for more demand. But if we do see a push towards nuclear, especially in Europe, uh, that is definitely a driver for increased demand. And that will definitely push spot up a, a lot quicker than uh, production will be able to meet it in that particular space. Um, so there's a couple names um, of the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, um, where it's at now. You know, this this trade sort of went on uh, back in September. And I think you're looking at a good buying opportunity at this point with a few months of consolidation and this news coming out of the, the EU. So ticker S-R-U-U-F. There's also Kamiko uh, or Kamiko, uh, CCJ, a uranium miner in Denison Mines, DNN. Um, but I think if if we are looking at energy being a significant driver uh, in of at least cap capital allocation in some of this rotation going into the start of the next year, uh, uranium is a space where I definitely love the uh, upside potential here relative to other places like crude. 
Makes sense. Let me give you the classic pushback. And I don't know how much of this will apply to uranium, but maybe it will spark a good discussion on commodities in general. So I feel like I'm I'm hearing from a lot of bulls on commodities going into 22. Um, and then on the other side of the equation are the bears and their argument goes something like this. Um, prices spiked to historic levels in, in 21. Um, and part of this is due to just kind of what happened with COVID, right? Uh, demand was ex- was extremely high, more so than than people thought. And suppliers were ca- caught off guard. They didn't expect the demand impact to happen. Uh, supply chain got completely messed up, as we all know. So people think, kind of see it as a one-time pop in prices caused by a one-time supply demand uh, disequilibrium. I don't even know if that's a word, but you, you catch my drift. Um, you know, looking at the spot, uh, spot prices on uranium over the last year, you know, I see a big pop in September, you know, it seems like it went up to like mid forties or so, which historically seems relatively high. Um, this is all to say, like, if you look at these companies involved, they're going to have amazing trailing earnings, presumably because the uh, spot prices were so high. And I think people are saying, well, the multiples seem cheap, but like what happens if there's a big supply glut going forward? Um, I'm used to hearing these bear arguments because whenever I try to push containers, um, and shipping stocks in front of people, I get the same pushback, like, oh, there's going to be an enormous shipping glut going into 22 and 23. So for uranium, and, and I guess if you want to talk about commodities in general, if you feel strongly about any specific one, like, how would you respond to that? Well, I mean, you got to zoom out here a little bit. With uranium in particular, I mean, we're, we're looking at a multi-year bear market basically kicked off by the Fukushima disaster in 2011. And so hitting... Um, basically a, a multi-decade bottom uh, with the, the COVID crash. So I think uh, from a, a secular standpoint, I think there is a strong enough at least trend looking at the chart here to suggest a strength in, in this space. Um, but a, a one-time uh, demand hit, I again, don't think is, is sufficient to, to really explain the, cert- the current dynamic, because if we're looking at energy uh, in particular, you know, with, with crude, yes, there, there was a, uh, a, a spike in demand with the vaccines coming out, you know, everyone uh, rushing out to travel, pent up demand, whatever, and uh, the production was not online to meet it. But if you look at the the next, call it five to 10 years, as we move towards, you know, being a, a you know, ESG dominated uh, economy society and move to renewables, um, there will be a slow death of oil over multiple years of the lack of investment and expectation. It will go away. That will only uh, create a, a harder supply dynamic. So even without significant demand, we're still not uh, producing as much as as we probably would need to to make this transition. I think OPEC is uh, been overselling sort of the excess production capacity that they have. And there is probably someday in the next few years where we figure out we've really reached and maxed out capacity. And so even though we are moving away from fossil fuels uh, and towards renewable technologies, uh, this is much more of a supply side driven dynamic that I think will be pushing uh, a lot more attention to it, especially with political cycles, uh, you know, heading into midterms and, you know, in other places in the world, seeing um, extreme prices in places like nat gas or, you know, for, for home heating, that's definitely going to drive some type of action and some, some type of need to find a solution that is uh, a little more near term than five to 10 years out uh, in terms of getting everyone on solar and, and whatever else. Yeah, I hear you. I think you did a good job there of talking about how, you know, the, the dynamics of uranium and, and the asset class in general are kind of different from other commodities. So I, so I, I buy that. Uh, and also, I think for oil, that we can see a little bit of that too, kind of in terms of the supply side and the, some of the ESG pressures there. 
Um, so I, I, yeah, I think I remain bullish commodities, medium and long term, but we'll see what happens. Um, I do want to segue to kind of your favorite talking point you sent me, uh, which is a trade that it seems like you're now getting bullish on and one that I got absolutely eaten alive on last year. Um, so this is the cannabis trade. <laughs> and, you know, it's maybe similar to the energy conversation. There are some supply demand dynamics that look like they could be positive. Uh, so we know supply is constrained for regulatory reasons. You know, someone who lives in, in Massachusetts and has seen the lines in Brighton when I drive past Netta, uh, I know the demand is there and, and should be there in, in other states as they legalize. You know, I, I'm a regular listener of the Cannabis Investing Podcast. I, I recommend people give that a listen because I think they do a great job of covering the industry. You know, they talk about there's six states that could potentially legalize this year. We know New Jersey is going to legalize. Uh, Pennsylvania is a massive state with a massive medical program that could go recreational in the near term future. Um, so, I mean, I think this is a super exciting trade. I think some of your notes to me suggest there could be, uh, you know, government legislation, potentially SAFE Act uh, passing this year. But I want to hear your thoughts. I'm hoping you, you got good news on the horizon because, man, this has been a terrible trade for me. Probably my worst one in the last couple of years. Hey, 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 smoke weed every day. Uh, so we have talked about weed before. That is for sure. But uh, I think the the weed names people know, Tilray, Canopy Growth, Kronos, any of those names, the Canadian companies, worthless, you know, dump them in the trash. We've already had three bubbles in weeds, so we know that it definitely has sort of uh, that potential for, for upside volatility. Uh, but this this is definitely a far more speculative play than some of the more macro-driven ones that we've discussed before. And so uh, what I sort of see as being the, the crown jewel here is not legalization in more states, but the federal legalization, which will allow you know businesses to operate you know, far more efficiently uh, with larger operations being able to scale and also allow for real exposure to uh, American cannabis companies because the uh, cannabis market in California is far larger than the cannabis market in, in Canada. And the amount of market cap for those Canadian weed companies is absolutely insane uh, compared to what the market is. But considering just California alone presents even a better uh, market, you know, once you have federal legalization and the, the ability to operate, you know, as a corporation, you know, be able to have access to banking, everything else, then I think think that's when this really takes off as an investment opportunity. Uh, and that's really been sort of the challenge so far. There's been definitely a willingness and, you know, a desire to have exposure to, to cannabis, but a lot of them have been purely speculative plays and very poorly run companies. And I can't really attest to the fundamentals or the quality of the, the leadership at any of the American companies. But yes, the best way to get some exposure to American companies is the MSOS ETF. Now, why do I think this is potentially a good time? Well, first, First of all, MSOS trading at 52 week lows, you know, not too far off from its issuance price. So, yeah, sorry about that one. Uh, but I think that also, you know, from someone on the outside looking in definitely presents an interesting buying opportunity. So, this is certainly a news driven play. And the catalysts that I see being out there are first, we saw back in November, uh, the Republicans introduced a bill uh, for federal legalization, which typically, you know, this had been something driven from the Democratic side. So, to have potentially bipartisan support indicates that, you know, once this becomes something that is politically relevant or important enough, uh, something that they should be able to find agreement relatively quickly. Now, what I think makes this potentially more immediate action than most people think, again, we are coming up to the midterms here, uh, 
Brandon's approval ratings are basically as low as they've ever been. We've also got you know a lot of concern that you know Democrats will lose uh, control of Congress. So there is a need for some type of political capital out there, and you know continuing to to beat on Trump, the January sixth thing, and COVID is not winning you know general support. So a huge pivot in the direction of weed might just be the uh the cure to what ails the the democrats here so you know this is purely speculative but something that i think would represent a great opportunity to at least reframe you know a lot of the policy and approaches to health and you know what what uh could potentially bring some interest back to to that party after you know potentially the worst week for the the biden administration so far uh with the vaccine mandates being shot down by the supreme court for uh, private enterprises uh, and just a, a number of other gaffes. So um, with the, the pressure mounting, inflation being through the roof, they need a positive uh, PR move here. And I think, you know, we could potentially be that play. Yeah, I'll throw out my favorite Don Draper quote or my paraphrasing of it. Uh, if you don't like the conversation, change the conversation. And I do think renewing some focus on some of this, this cannabis le- legislation would get you there. I mean, there's a whole lot to like. People have heard my thoughts on kind of Illinois as a case study, but the amount of tax receipts that state is taking in is enormous. I mean, it's larger than alcohol. And uh, these companies would be okay with taxes on cannabis that's higher than alcohol. I think what most of the multi-state operators are looking for is just accounting treatment, right? They want to be able to write off the debt. They just want normal accounting treatment like all these other United States corporations get. Um, if they got it, we know like on an you know an adjusted EBITDA basis, these companies would be hugely cash flow positive. Um, you know, Jeffries had a, a report that circulated on the entire industry a couple months ago. Basically, their point was if you look, you know, a year ahead, most of these companies are trade at pretty low single digit multiples, uh, way below you know what most consumer packaged goods or CPG companies typically trade at. So I've been a MSOS bag holder. Uh, for a year and a half, I think, you know, my cost basis is probably mid thirties. Um, so you can tell I, I have not done well on it. You know, if you were to ask me to explain like what's happened what went wrong there, um, I honestly can't give you a whole lot of reasons. I mean, I think one possible extenuating circumstance was there is a price war in Florida, just in terms of flower prices. Um, you've seen that come down pretty significantly as more licenses have been handed out. Um, Q3 results were, were kind of weak. Um, and when I say weak, it's like people miss guidance just by a bit. These companies are still growing at like 25, 30% plus. Um, so there's not a whole lot of fundamental reasons to explain why the sector has become pretty unloved. Um, I will steal liberally here from a recent podcast that was on uh, business breakdowns on uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast. This is from Jeff Hoffman, um, who is a, uh, a partner, I think at Marathon Equity Partners. Um, who you know owns quite a few Canna stocks, but he makes this point, which I've heard before, but I think he had some good stats here. He says, the liquidity of this, these companies is actually quite fascinating. The top five multi-state operators have a cumulative market cap of $20 billion. Yeah, that, that's billion with a B, but only trade 60 million in aggregate in a day. Um, for perspective, this is like nothing in volume. Like there are companies that, that regularly trade more than their market cap on a single day, just in terms of, of total transaction volume. And the reason for this is basically that like all these companies are on Canadian stock exchanges that like some investors don't even have access to, depending on what brokerage account you have. Um, We know for a fact that uh, mutual funds and other types of funds can't trade them. MSOS gets through it because they use um, 
uh, instrument called equity swaps that basically allow them to mirror the the price, but like they don't actually own any of the the shares um, behind the scenes of these uh, USM so- or US multi-state operators. So like I'm hoping there will be legislation that will allow them to list in the New York Stock Exchange. Um, this is kind of ranty, but I'll throw out like there are like regular frauds that trade on the New York Stock Exchange that have like massive accounting scandals and don't have real businesses. Um, there's also like, you know, biopharma companies that don't have any approved drugs and have no shot at getting an approved drug that also trade on U.S. exchanges. So, you know, it is an issue I feel pretty strongly about. Like, I think also there's been a fair amount of cannabis research that has shown health benefits. Um, so, like, hopefully, uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats can agree on this and, and push uh, through some of this legislation. Uh, I think it would help a whole lot of people. And less importantly, it would help my portfolio. So I'm rooting for it, man. I, we'll, we'll see what happens here. And one more thing to add there, there was uh, an article going around that uh, I think a lot of you may have seen, um, but cannabis compounds may prevent coronavirus infection study finds. Oregon State Research found two cannabis compounds, uh, cannabigeralic acid, uh, CBD, you know, I'm not going to read that, uh, could prevent SARS-CoV-2 from infecting human cells. So uh, I think most people that would agree with that probably don't read the rest of the article, but um, it does seem like, at least from a PR standpoint, there there is, you know, a, a positive sort of uh, mindset around, you know, this potentially being uh, uh, a, a therapeutic or, or something that one could also add to the mix as preventative medicine. But, you know, one thing I will add to the, the bear case here as far as, uh, you know, weed business, particularly retail in the U.S., is that, you know, one of the things that I think we've learned having retail open uh, is that it makes a black market a lot easier to operate and with such heavy taxes um it pre- pre- presents a you know very attractive alternative uh, for cost conscious customers you know based on how much cheaper i guess those prices can be and how much easier it is for uh black market uh we'll call them dealers i guess to to operate now relative to before with decriminalization and everything else uh there is basically a thriving market and that's definitely been an issue in california and something a lot of dispensary owners have called out as an issue asking for uh governor newsom to you know ease some of the the tax burden there on them but uh i think that is potentially a risk at least to to margins and you know potential growth for the retail sector but at the same time i think having uh, just general access uh, across the country, you know, will certainly present a, a phenomenal growth opportunity. And then, you know, eventually the market will find some equilibrium in terms of, you know, what what the actual you know, potential consumption is or, you know, what what we think the market size could be. But I think that's the issue here. And particularly what went wrong with something like uh, MSOS is it's still very hard to understand what the size of this market is. Uh, and, you know, what the, the most viable approach to, you know, a large scale cannabis operation or something that looks similar to, you know, a lot of the corporate uh, type enterprises that we're familiar with. And that's still something to be decided. It's, it's a far more nascent market than I think uh, a lot of investors really uh, realize or they definitely take for granted, you know, that, that it's still being figured out. For sure. Yeah. Do your own diligence, not investing advice. I don't say that often enough on this podcast, but I should start every podcast with it. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point on the black market. I mean, some other bear market risks that that kind of throw me for a loop here. I mean, even if we do legalize or depending on what type of legislation you see in states, like I definitely worry about a lot of licenses flooding the market and a lot of the operators competing against each other and seeing margins come down. How much will margins come down? Like that's anyone's guess. But like some of these guys are like, oh, you know, we think we can do like 30% EBITDA margins. And it's like, well, good luck if like legalization happens, that's probably not going to go down. 
additionally, like, I just think we're, people are probably still waiting for like that kind of Nike, uh, you know, Coors Light or Bud Light type brand in cannabis. Um, you know, I, I could, I'd be challenged to name a few, despite like knowing a lot of the stocks, like I, I guess cookies is like a popular brand. Um, but in general, it's like, if you think brands are going to be worth a lot, we really haven't seen that at, at this point in time. A lot of celebrities are definitely lending their name. Like I've seen some SPACs that all that, you know, have celebrity weed endorsements. So that kind of scares me there's like a lot of players entering the ring. Um, maybe we'll see some consolidation, but like, that's actually one reason I do like MSOS because I think you are somewhat hedged because you own the five, the five best us operators and some other companies. So hopefully one of them emerges as, you know, a true champion. And of that $20 billion market cap, I mentioned one of them maybe becomes an hundred billion dollar company and the rest can go to zero and you're sitting on a five bagger. Uh, but yeah, I think again, this is like a very nascent industry um, by no means am I an expert, but like, I, I think, you know, Right now, it's unclear kind of who's winning the market. And once legalization happens, it, who knows what will, how things will pan out then. Um, I wouldn't be surprised also to see like some companies we've never heard of acquiring a ton of licenses and, and also competing. Um, but double-edged sword, right? It's like more competition means more legalization. And I'm pretty confident the stock should do well on legalization announcements. I mean, what's your take on that? I, I yeah, th this is definitely a news driven market. So, you know, the catalyst will be any type of, you know, either legislative uh, move or just announcements um, coming out in that space. Um, but I think what what really needs to be considered is that the what we've learned from Canada is that capacity to or production capacity can far outpace retail or the ability to, to actually sell all that capacity. So there's far more investment in different grow operations than there were actual retail locations to sell. So there's that bottleneck of retail. And I think what would be the most successful model and, you know, it, it bears to be seen if this is even something that can be arranged based on how regulation works, but a, a vertically integrated uh, company where they are both able to you know, have their own retail lo locations where they sell based on you know, their own production capacity. So being able to efficiently scale both your retail operation and your production to meet your demand in real time and you know, have a much more efficient supply chain there to maximize your, your margins is probably the only sustainable business model. And this is something similar to, I think, how craft beer is going to continue to exist. There is not a lot of individual brand strength with so many different options. No no one brand is going to be superior in the same way that something like Bud Light, where I guess their brand superiority is based on billions of dollars of uh, advertising. Um, but there there is not really any reason for one brand to sort of dominate over another. But having, I guess, you know, the, the ability to produce and sell your own product and be able to you know capitalize on you know the the lack of a middleman is going to be essential for any of these different uh you know multi-state operators to be successful as opposed to purely being a producer or purely being in retail so i would be looking for the opportunities for for more integration assuming that is what regulation allows yeah well said and right now it's difficult i mean the multi-state operators a lot of them do have large production facilities in florida and some of the other states some of the other states prohibit it. Um, I mean, some of the rules around interstate commerce, which I mean, there is none. You can't transport between states, kind of make it so you need to have your own grow facilities in those states. Um, so we'll see what happens. I mean, I think kind of the like strategic advantages from like the logistics and supply chain side, that completely changes if slash when it's legalized. Uh, but one to watch. Like, I, I think this is you could boil this down to this is a trade where, you know, from a dollars being transactioned today is like many multiples smaller than what it will be in five years. 
So I feel like my upside is much higher than my downside, but so far my downside has been pretty terrible. Uh, so, you know, let's, uh, let's keep, uh, keep our fingers crossed that things get better here. Um, we're we're, we're running on a go ahead that yeah. point in the weed cycle. So the, the cycle will some point return to hysteria and you'll, you'll be delivered an exit. Should you take it or not? Yeah. And that's such a good point. Cause it's just on some of the cycle stuff, it's like, you see the hype around SPACs, around SAS, around some of these Chinese stocks. And, you know, I really continue to believe cannabis has a super long runway. Um, you know, it's definitely a growing industry. Like there's regulatory tailwinds. Um, but yeah, it hasn't really caught a bid in, in two or three years. I mean, I suppose, as you said, like whatever it was, 17 or 18, things kind of went haywire. Um, but And I guess right when Biden was elected, uh, some of these stocks did quite well. But uh, yeah, it trades on a new cycle. You said it perfect. Anyways, uh, we're about on time. I, I did want to close kind of with looking at some of our bets because I think they're hilarious to look at uh, since we made them. So uh, yeah, this might be entertaining for people who have listened to the podcast for a long time. So uh, our first one, I think, ever was Berkshire Hathaway versus uh, QQQ or the NASDAQ 100. So we made this, um, I have on May 1st, 2020. So you at various points in this bet were up by like a ton. It wasn't even close. But as of Friday's close, so that would have been um, January 14th. So before dividends, so after dividends, I think I'm winning this bet. Uh, Berkshire is up 77%. Uh, Triple Q is up 78.6%. And the market is actually down. The market is uh, losing this bet at 64.3% if you measure through SPY. Um, so we both beat the market. So, you know, uh, that, that on the back to both of us. Um, some other ones that I think people will find entertaining. So MGM versus CrowdStrike. This one you were also winning for the longest time and actually just recently flipped. Um, so made August 10th, 2020. Um I will say with MGM, I think people are possibly looking at some of the crazy betting activity or betting promotions going on and saying like, oh, MGM can facilitate a lot of these payments. Like there's still rules around having to use a physical on-prem casino um, to kind of go through the digital sports books and, and maybe looking at some of the potential there. Um, there's uh, Andrew Walker had a good post on like, I think Caesars is giving away, like you deposit 3000 bucks and they match it. And then you get like one free bet or something. So uh, there are apparently ways to make free money from these sports books. But anyways, uh, MGM is up 105%. Uh, and CrowdStrike over that time is only up 82. Uh, so that one flipped. And then finally, I got I to gotta do my victory lap on this one because uh, Crocs really has just carried my portfolio. Complete opposite of MSOS. Uh, has erased a lot of the bad memories of MSOS and National Cinemedia for people who fo followed me. Crocs is up 200% since August 17th when I very strongly recommended it. Uh, Skechers only up 47% at that time. So the beloved brands uh, continues to run. I don't know if you saw this, but they did acquire Hey Dude, which is even more beloved. Uh, hey Dude is, you know, they make some very comfortable shoes. I, I think they're going to they're gonna really compete with Allbirds. So I think a great buy for Crocs. Crocs is a remarkably good trade, both directions, trading like a growth stock and in, in some of my favorite cloud SaaS names. And so I have no explanation for why it is such an entertaining name, at least in the, the near term options uh, space. But, you know, hey, here's to here's to the gibbets. Exactly, man. I'll, I'll re-recommend Crocs. I think there's a case this could be a $400 stock. And I think Hey Dude makes it even more interesting. They said it's accretive to earnings. Hey Dude's growing faster than the core Crocs brand. Um, so go online, buy yourself a pair of Crocs, buy yourself a pair of Hey Dudes. They're super comfortable. Get some gibbets on top of that. But uh, 
Yeah, Crocs, I, I think, is a runner. It's a compounder. I am a, I am holding on for dear life. Should have made that uh, Lulu versus Crocs because I, I would definitely want to buy and hold some some Lulu. And that's just, you know, boots on the ground take here in the uh, amount of product that I own and absolutely love. So if we could re-up that bet from today forward, I would take a Lulu versus Crocs uh, wager. Okay, we'll swap, we'll swap you out for Lulu. That, that's interesting is Lulu... Uh... So you, you got some on the ground uh, details that the the products flying off the shelves. Oh, I, their their pants and their shirts are great. That's that's about it. I'm not about to provide any type of uh, materially significant information here. But if we can make the bet from today forward, just we'll based we'll on on uh, you know this recent correction, and I think this is a good opportunity to buy, which you know Crocs is showing something pretty similar. I definitely take you know the prospect of. Uh, the, the, the brand strength of, of Lululemon, the potential to add, you know, additional products here, expand, um, potentially with fitness products, you know, who knows, maybe even buy Peloton just because that's such a garbage company that's, you know, going to be definitely trading at a discount. So I just see a lot of opportunity for Lulu to corner that fitness space, which continues to be hot in a way that, you know, Crocs, I think, um, you know, running, uh, I don't know how many more tricks they have in their bag for, you know, just cheap, weird looking footwear. We got to save, uh, we'll save this for another podcast, but Abercrombie and Fitch is one I haven't really talked to you about much, but you know, it, it's, you can, you can put Abercrombie outside your mind for the time being. I think this is all about um, Hollister. They have uh, a couple other brands. Um, one's called Gilly Hicks and the other is called Social Tourist, which uh, have a good amount of TikTok uh, promoter support. But to me, the, you know, Fran Horowitz, the new CEO has, you know, she's been there since 2017, but she's really worked to kind of change the brand. Um, and it trades like a value stock. I actually think there's an argument it should potentially trade like a growth stock. So that, that's the new Crocs in my portfolio, but we, we can revisit that one next time. But anyways, man, good. Yeah. On future weeks, a discussion of some of the cyclical plays out there uh, may, may be in order, but no, until then, I think uh, one, one last thought here might be time to start thinking about gold again if real rates start turning around, especially if you are fading the dollar. So one last thing to be looking at. And uh, one thing to point out, did mention this briefly earlier, but we are coming up on the one-year anniversary of the insane move from GameStop. Uh, so that might be a very interesting <laughs> short opportunity next week as a lot of bag holders have now hit the lower capital gains uh, bracket holding for a year here. So an interesting thesis. I actually got that from my brother. So shout out. Uh, to Jody there. Um, but one thing I'll be watching the next week. Yeah. Funny to think about the one year anniversary of that podcast. I remember just being shocked and, and talking to you and that went down. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how that pans out. But this is, as always, buddy, it's been an honor and a pleasure. And until next time, happy trading. Oh yes. The pleasure is all mine. Happy trading to you too, brother.